Please forgive me. Please forgive me. 
podcast. In the last podcast episode, I noted the confusion that can be created in the minds of readers of the Belgic Confession. Confusion over the gospel due to statements that appear to connect baptism with salvation in some way. This time, as we continue talking about baptism, we'll look at the Heidelberg Catechism. It's important to keep in mind that the reason I'm doing this is that I've had lay people read these documents and emerge very confused. They know the gospel going in, and are left wondering why in the world the creeds say what they do coming out. They read clearly on the gospel in one part, and then they say things about baptism that sound like they violate the gospel. The poor wording is a very real source of confusion for people who aren't theological experts. And frankly, the experts are so married to the creeds via denominationalism that they're left to defend the confused wording poorly in many cases. Let's look at the Catechism now. It's structured in the form of questions. Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. How are thou righteous before God? Answer, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that, though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Unquote. Now that's a pretty succinct articulation of the biblical gospel. There's no confusion there. So we move on to question 61. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Answer. Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Moving to question 65, question, since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, whence does this faith proceed? Answer, from the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments, unquote. Now, again, there's a lot of, of clarity in there, but you have to wonder here, what it means that the Holy Ghost confirms the faith he gives by the sacraments. 
Do infants exercise faith when they're baptized? It's hard for me to believe the Catechism would presume that. Reformed theology will, of course, seek to honor the connection between circumcision and baptism, but there's no scriptural affirmation that Abraham's children believed when they were circumcised, or anyone's children believed when circumcised when they're eight days old. If one retreats to the idea that parents can believe for the infant, this fails in two respects. One, that it isn't confirmed in the Catechism's statements about salvation by faith. Two, it's not affirmed anywhere in the Bible either. The confusion mounts when we look at what the Catechism says about the sacrament of baptism specifically. We start with Heidelberg Catechism question 66 in that regard. Question, what are the sacraments? Answer, The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals, appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely, that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. It's interesting wording here and very common wording in sacramental theology. Sacraments are, quote, signs and seals, unquote. I get the sign part. The sacrament is like a picture or analogy of some greater spiritual reality or point. But then we have problems. What does it mean that the sacrament declares and seals to us the promise of the gospel, the remission of sin, life eternal? for the sake of the sacrifice of Christ. What does that mean? Is this wording saying that all who are baptized, especially as infants, have the remission of sins sealed to them? Sure sounds like it. I have to wonder how that is the case, given the clear articulation of the gospel that preceded this section in the Heidelberg Catechism. Those in Reformed circles, it seems to me, can pretty easily keep the gospel and baptism separate when talking about signs or analogies. But when you use words like sealing, it suggests something is accomplished and guaranteed through baptism, and that is theologically dangerous. Again, think back to earlier podcast episodes we've already had about my emphasis on if you say something about baptism, you ought to be able to say it about circumcision as well, and vice versa. If they're connected, the language needs to be consistent, and the theology needs to be consistent. Let's go on to question 67. Question. Are both word and sacraments, then, ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. This is the answer. For the Holy Ghost teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. Unquote. Now this wording is a little better, but it still raises questions. The sacraments quote-unquote, direct our faith to Christ. Well, what does that mean? Is it a pointer? As in, oh, I see, that's what I'm supposed to believe to have eternal life. Or is it some sort of spiritual kickstart to move us toward the gospel? If it does that, why does it fail when people don't believe or when they apostatize, they give up their faith? That's a nice way of saying what good is it if it has no guarantee. And if it doesn't do that, why not be clearer in what is written? In other words, why not be more clear in what it does do? On to question 71 in the Catechism. Question. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? Answer. In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, quote, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 28:19. And also, another verse, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16:16. 16, 16. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism, quote-unquote, the washing of regenerations and the washing away of sins, Titus 3, 5, Acts 22, 16, unquote. Now we have some problems. The Titus 3, 5 reference is not only taken completely out of context here, it is even misquoted. Here's the full verse and the surrounding text from Titus. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that was Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. So it gives you some context for verse 5. What saves us is the washing of the Holy Spirit, not the washing of the water. There's actually no water in those verses. The Acts 22.16 reference is also partially quoted. Here's the full verse and the surrounding context. This is Acts 22, verses 12 through 16. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Unquote. Now who is being baptized here? Well, it's Paul. His former name was Saul. When Paul gives his testimony in Scripture, does he refer to his baptism at the hand of Ananias or his confrontation with the risen Christ that preceded it? It's always the latter. When God speaks to Ananias to tell him to go baptize Paul, God makes it clear that he has already chosen Paul. Ananias himself says in Acts 9.17 these words, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias refers to Saul as brother before his baptism. Without belaboring the point, Paul had already had his conversion experience before baptism right on the Damascus Road. Frankly, I know of no tradition that questions this, but I thought I should mention it since when Paul is baptized, we have the line about, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This isn't as difficult as it seems or has been made. If the verse only said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, it would be more problematic. But it includes calling on his, Jesus' name, which is how Paul describes his confession of faith and the confession of faith of others in Romans 10, verses 10 through 13. In this instance, the recipient of baptism knows the gospel already and makes profession of faith along with baptism. It isn't baptism that saves. It's the profession of faith in Christ. In Paul's case, it was the encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Infants cannot do this. As for those who can do this, the theological question is simple. In all of Scripture's explanations of the gospel, which is the indispensable element, faith in the saving work of Christ or water baptism? The answer is pretty obvious. Yes, water baptism marked believers and was a rite that analogized an inner spiritual reality. But one could believe without it, 
and one isn't going to heaven without faith in Christ. The latter is the gospel. Using Acts 22.16 to somehow suggest that water baptism triggers forgiveness is theologically irresponsible and ignores a great deal of context and content in the New Testament. It's difficult to believe how wrong the Heidelberg Catechism gets this point, but it gets even murkier. Listen to question 74. Question. Are infants also to be baptized? Answer. Yes, for since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult. Unquote. Well, no kidding. Redemption is promised to the whole world. But how can a staunch Calvinist say that? That's a question for another podcast. And we all begin as children. If you're a five-point Calvinist, you must take this wording as only true of the elect. And that raises another problem. Why, then, do baptized people in Bible-believing, Reformed, Calvinistic churches go astray? How can the elect apostatize? This is the sort of theological dilemma I referred to in the very first episode of the podcast. For Calvinists who practice infant baptism, Either their doctrine of baptism needs rethinking, or their ideas about the perseverance of the elect need to be scrapped. You can't have it both ways. But here are some responses I've actually read or heard from Reformed pastors and writers. Well, if the infant's parents were believers, the baptized infant doesn't need to believe. The infant is part of the covenant relationship passed on by believing parents. Now think about that. So, if the faith of the parents is what really matters, then what's the point of describing baptism this way? More significantly, it doesn't answer the question. Sure, the infant gets baptized and is in the covenant. So, why did they apostatize again? It also doesn't address the situation where adults are baptized who didn't have believing parents, and then the baptized adult ends up forsaking the faith. Frankly, this is just a response that avoids the issue, unless you want to say that people who reject the faith still go to heaven because of what someone else believes. I've also heard something like this. Well, baptism isn't supposed to work for the non-elect. So tell me, just how is that like circumcision again? How did circumcision work when it came to salvation? The answer is that it didn't work at all and wasn't intended to be a ticket to salvation. Israel as a nation was elect, and all Jewish males were to be circumcised. No one was more Jewish than other Jewish people, and yet most of the nation apostatized. Honestly, the logic here is just horrible. It seems to me we have some choices to make in response. Maybe baptism accomplishes nothing. Or... Maybe the elect may not end up elect, meaning that election and salvation are two separate ideas. Now, any of those alternatives, and all of them, frankly, contradict the catechism's wording. Remember, the reason I'm going through this exercise is to show how confused the wording of the creeds are with respect to baptism. They are confused because they fail to recognize the need to say only about baptism what one can coherently and biblically say about circumcision. Once you blow that assignment, your thinking is going to be hopelessly muddled and inconsistent. And unfortunately, it doesn't get any better with the Westminster Confession. That's the one we'll be taking a look at in the next episode of the Naked Bible Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. For this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.
You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Hyder's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 403, Revelation Q&A, part 4. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike. How you doing? No, I'm still doing well. I, I could say that because we're just doing what we have to do here. We, we're kind of in a routine now. I mean, I, I thrive on routine normally. But, uh, you know, when you're thrown into this set of circumstances, it helps to have a routine. Otherwise, you just sort of sit around and, I don't know, watch The Voice or something. <laughs> just, voice we don't want to get watch? to that point. Where, is that what y'all no, watch? What's no, no, no. No. No, Do y'all have a TV show? Like, is there a Heiser my, TV show? My wife, my wife asked me the other day if I was, if, if I was depressed or like if I was giving up because I'm watching more TV. See, I don't watch TV, but now I'm at home, and so sometimes I'm not mentally alert enough because of medication to like do anything productive. So I'll watch TV. You know, you just sort of go on autopilot. Yeah, but, but she's like waves. interpreting. Yeah, she's like interpreting this as a surrender. <laughs> well, what like, the, uh, well, like what's, what's happening to you? You're watching TV all of a sudden. Well, are you just watching random stuff, or do you have like something you're actually watching? I, you know, when I turn it on, I'll look for National Geographic. I like the Life Below Below Zero shows, but if if those aren't on, it's like I'm just kind of stuck. Yeah, I'm, I'm surely not watching Ancient Aliens. <laughs> you know, Science Channel once in a while will have something good on, but yeah. yeah. No, we're not. I'm not. I'm not doing the British baking shows and The Voice, and you know, I, I need an intervention then. Yeah. No. I yeah, need I to have somebody, some, somebody come and rescue me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love TV. You've got to just go veg out, and get those alpha waves going every now and then. It's a good. Yeah, it's I, good to unwind. Said so it, it. It's disturbed my wife. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah, that would be disturbing. All of a sudden, now you're just uh, a couch potato. Well, it's we so, yeah, it's so out of character, you know, like, because my, my weeks are like 60 to 70 hours of working on something. I'm always working on something, you know, but this has slowed me down. I'm about 50% productivity, which means I'm getting a good 30 to 40 hours of something in. But uh, the fact that I'm not always engaged that I'm actually, you know, I've become passive in watching TV. It's disturbed my wife a little bit. That's probably good for you to slow down a little bit. You need a little break. Enjoy it while you can, because I'm sure once you're full strength, you're going to go right back. Yeah, I just thought it was funny, you know, like, no, we're okay here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I have to, you know, I can't... uh, can't be on the offensive all the time anymore. So, all right. Well, let's put you to work here at least on this. Yeah, really. Questions here, Mike. We still got a few more comments um, left over from our 400th uh, celebration. We're gonna keep the party going here, and uh, it's from uh, the Terry family in uh, Brazil, India, Indiana, <laughs> India, Indiana. Uh, he says we uh, Terry says, we are Heiserites. Been listening to you guys' show religiously for the last three years and a half. So, three and a half years. We appreciate that from the Terry family. There's some dedication. Yeah, thank you. Alright, Alan has a first question. Dr. Heiser insists that angels don't have wings. Since angels are spiritual beings, are they limited in form? In the Bible, they sometimes are represented represented as men or even stars. Why couldn't they have wings? Philo of Alexandria says the Greek god Mercury had wings on his ankles because he was a swift messenger from the gods. Couldn't the angels of Revelation be seen as messengers from God? Well, with with all due respect to Philo, I don't really care what Philo says about, about the god Mercury. Um, you know, all these things, the fact that they're spiritual beings means they don't have any form. Okay, that we would recognize that if you're a spiritual being, you're, you're, you're by definition, by nature, disembodied, or at least, you know, you, you don't, you don't have embodiment like, like, like we are familiar with it. So all of these descriptions 
are really about designating attributes or point of origin. The fact that angels descend tells you that they're from heaven. Heaven is up there, okay? Even though we know theologically that heaven doesn't have spatiality. It doesn't have latitude and longitude, okay? It's not a contained you know, physical space in any sense. But yet we have to use language, you know, the language of spatiality to even talk about it. And it's the same thing for the beings that inhabit the spiritual world. They have, you know, some sort of embodiment, you know, because they're they're visible to the eye. They they are written as though they appear in certain ways. But we have to remember that, that all of this, it's it's not like an ontological description of of an angel. And, you know, I'm just not make I'm not willing to make up details that aren't in the Bible. The fact is, the Bible never describes angels as having wings. Period. So I'm not going to add to it. So I, I, I can, rather than saying I insist that angels don't have wings, let's go with the correct statement that says Scripture doesn't ever describe them with wings, and so we shouldn't conclude that they do have wings. And again, even these passages that have ascending and descending, even those will lack the wings description. It has the ascent and the descent, but it's just designed to tell us where being comes from, in this case, heaven, to earth. It doesn't say that any wings were flapping. They could just be floating, for all we know, or just descending. And it's the same language used in the second coming. I doubt when Jesus comes back that he grew wings, okay, in order to, to descend. And the same thing for, for us, when we ascend, you know, to, to the spiritual world. Again, it, it just means we leave our earthly plane and we go up there. Up there, where God lives, the heavens, the heavenly place, the heavenly realm. You know, we're not growing wings to do that either. These are all these are metaphors, okay? That, that try to get us to at least be able to conceptualize beings who are not like us in some pretty fundamental ways by using language that's familiar to us. It's, it's not an easy task. It's a very difficult task, and this is how the biblical writers accomplish it. Now, when we do have supernatural beings interact with people in biblical stories, like the angel of the Lord, you don't see the angel of the Lord ever described with wings. You don't see an angel ever described with wings when they interact with people. Rather, they look like men. And for me, the best instance of this is, is the incident with at Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. Okay? If they had wings, Lot would have noticed that. You know, but but to, he describes them as men that's what they look like. Now, when they do something that men can't do, like strike the city blind, well, then he kind of knows, okay, these, these aren't normal guys. And, and, the, and the text will call them angels in Revelation 19, or not Revelation 19, Genesis 19. But, you know, I, I'm just not willing to add details, you know, where they're not, you know, part of the text of Scripture. That, you know, it's, it's as simple as that. I don't have any big, I don't have any, uh, I'm not a special interest group opposed to Wayne Bank. Uh, opposed to adding details that aren't there and pretend they are. It's not. It's not part of the picture. Bill has a question about Revelation 6-2, and it reads in the ESV, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So Bill's question is about the word bow. I do not remember a single commentary reference to this bow being anything but a weapon of war. And it is common to also mention that this writer lacks arrows for this bow. But the Blue Letter Bible says that this is that word, and it means toxin. From the base of G5088, a bow, apparently as the simplest fabric, bow. I have looked for simple fabric bows from the time of Jesus, and I have not been able to find anything that flips my switch. I would appreciate any light could shed on the word toxin equals bow. Sure. Yeah. Uh, again, Re Revelation 6-2, I don't think we need to read it again, but we have a rider with a bow, and, and there is no mention of, of the arrows. We'll get back to that in a moment, but the, the Greek word is toxin. You could look that up in BDAG or some other, you know, standard lexicon. It's an archer's weapon, um, but that's all you're going to find in, in the simple lexicons, which isn't terribly helpful. But what I recommend is that any book, and there are a number of these, 
of both reference books and, and individual books, believe it or not. Any book on Greco-Roman or Second Temple military gear or warfare would include discussions and descriptions of the toxin. So if you Google, for instance, the words archery, ancient Greece, but I recommend using Google Scholar uh, for that search, you're actually going to find some free studies on Greco-Roman, you know, Greek archery, you know, their weapons of warfare, and it'll get into these full descriptions of, of what the, you know, the particular weapon was, what it was made of, how it was used, who used it, so on and so forth. Some scholars, interestingly enough, if you, if you do that, you'll find that uh, there is a something of a disagreement about the word itself, uh, toxin. Some think that it's not a native Greek word. Some think it's a loan word from Scythian. Um, and so you'll, you will find studies of painted pottery, this, this familiar sort of Greek pottery, that will talk about the warrior's in the pottery actually being Scythians or, or modeled after Scythians. And part of that discussion is, is the bow that is depicted. So this is, this is what's behind this notion that maybe toxin is a word brought in to Greek from the outside through specifically these archers from, from Scythia. You know, who knows? I mean, you, you can evaluate that as, as you want, but I would recommend running, running that search. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll, one sentence here, the kind of things that you're going to run into, or, or at least that you can find that, have, that will give you free access. I just mentioned the Scythian archers. You're, if you run the search, you'll find an article that's called Scythian archers in ancient attic vase painting, and it'll talk about the toxin. You'll find another one called the Ephebeia in the Hellenistic period. It's part of a book called A Companion to Ancient Education. Uh, the Ephebeia was like citizenship training in ancient Greece. So as part of every boy's right to passage to adulthood uh, in, in citizenship training, they were given certain weapons to practice with. And, and just one quote here, military instruction was also given in throwing a spear, the Akon, and shooting a bow, the toxin, to provide Ephebes or Ephebes, those who are in training, citizenship training, with the complementary skills of light-armed troops. So, so closely associated was archery with ephebic service that the bow or quiver might by itself symbolize, be used as a symbol of the next sort of cohort, the next you know, citizenship training class. They actually you know, would, would use the bow as a symbol of that. So it was kind of a rudimentary or, be, or beginner's bow that was very common. Uh, it didn't stop. It's used there. I mean, you, you, would, you would find it, you know, used in battle alongside other weapons as well. But that's, you know, kind of what, what you get, you know, with, with that. So any, any study on uh, ancient Greco-Roman, specifically, you want to narrow your search to Greece, uh, weaponry. Uh, and you can find a lot of that stuff that, that's available, hyperlinked for free, uh, if you use Google Scholar to, to run that search. Now, back to the comment about the arrows not being mentioned. So if you look for toxin in the Septuagint, if you ran a search in, the, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would find the word used of the bow itself and also used of the quiver that would go with the bow. So it's safe to assume that, that arrows are present in the picture, whether they're specifically mentioned or not. And by way of illustrating this, let me just use a parallel. Let me ask this question. Do we really need a writer or a TV broadcaster, a news reporter, to specifically mention bullets, to know that bullets are in view in sentences like, they entered the warehouse, guns drawn, or they approached the enemy, guns at the ready? No. We intuitively know that they're not carrying weapons that are empty. We know that the bullets are in there. They, you don't have to mention the bullets. And it's the same thing with mentioning the toxin. If you mention that the bow, well, it's assumed that you actually would use the toxin. And to use the toxin, you need arrows. So it's assumed that the arrows are just already uh, part of the picture. But the, the word is sometimes elastically translated enough in the Septuagint anyway 
to include the quiver uh, and its arrows. Aaron says, truly, truly has opened a door to reach common ground with anyone who is seeking to find out who and why they are here. Thank you, Dot Connector. All right, you're welcome. Tom from Dallas has a question about uh, Revelation 8, 1 through 6 podcast, episode 375. At about the 36-minute mark, Mike says that the righteous will be resurrected to eternal life and the wicked to eternal death. Now, here's the problem. I don't think the phrase or idea of eternal death appears anywhere in the Bible. What you always find is the counterpoint between eternal life and destruction or the second death. I think people assume the idea of eternal death, but I don't find it in the Bible. I even looked up a website that listed 12 verses about everlasting death in the Bible, and not one of them contained that idea. It was all about destruction or being cast into hell or about hell being eternal but nothing about death being everlasting. Obviously, this is about annihilationism, but I wonder if Mike thinks the phrase eternal death is defensible from the text of Scripture. Yeah, you, I mean, it's correct to say that you don't, you don't get that specific phrase. I mean, you do get language that can be interpreted that way, and of course has been. And it can also be interpreted a different way to support annihil- annihilationism. So, you know, I've, I've actually commented on this in a number of places uh, in the podcast, whether it be where it makes sense in the series on Revelation and some other Q&As. This, this question ultimately, because there, you can't answer the question by saying this phrase is absent present in the text. Because whether a phrase is absent, whatever phrases are there, can be interpreted in two directions. So we have to acknowledge that, which is why there's a debate between your your traditional view of eternal torment and annihilationism. Both of them result in something forever. Okay, at least you know in theory. Because if you're annihilated, you're you're gone forever. You're not going to come back. Okay, so that. There's a forever duration involved in that, but it doesn't have the suffering of eternal torment, you know, the traditional view. Rather, it's, it's talking about destruction that lasts forever. So I've, I've mentioned many times on the podcast that I think uh, annihilation certainly needs to be on the table because of passages like the death of death. You know, how, how do we understand this? And ultimately, this comes down to how literally or how metaphorically one defines death. Okay, is death just separation from God? Does it include that idea and, and, and talk about physical termination? If it's physical termination of the body, but yet the spirit lives on, does that count as a death? Do we have death continuing on even when death is eliminated? See, that to me, that, that's the fundamental question. How can death itself be destroyed and you have people who are still dying, i.e. They're, they're still being eternally tormented. So that, the, the fact that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me uh, makes me feel like annihilation makes a lot of good sense. And there are other reasons. I'm not going to rehearse all of them here. We, we had some of them recently in the Revelation 19 and 20 episodes. But at, at the same time, you know, I can't also say that it's not possible that we should be reading the, the language you know, differently. You know, again, metaphorically in a different direction. And I, let me add here, Isaiah 24, 21 to 22, I think, you know, since since the this perspective sort of came from the annihilationist perspective, I'm going to I'm going to potentially throw some weight to the traditional view here by making this this extra little comment. If you go to Isaiah 24, 21 and 22, those mo- that might be the passage in the Old Testament that is the most useful for defending a traditional view of everlasting punishment if you connect Isaiah 24, 21, and 22 specifically to the lake of fire scenes at the end of the book of Revelation. So let me just open up my uh, software here. I'm going to read Isaiah 24, 21, and 22 to you so you don't have to struggle to know what in the world I'm talking about, but this is actually, again, a fairly useful verse for those who are going to argue against the annihilation view. 
and in favor of a more traditional view. So verse 21 says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. That's ESV. And we have a judgment both of God's earthly enemies at the day of the Lord and also judgment in the spiritual world, God's spiritual enemies, again, in the day of the Lord. This is this is what the passage is about, Isaiah 24. So now if you look at that, depending on how you translate for many days, okay, so let's just go back here, or after many days they will be punished. In verse 22, if you if you translate it after many days, then it's a it's a little bit clunky. Literally, in, in the Hebrew, it's from many days. And you can, you can translate this in to, to say something like, um, for many days. So let me just read it again. So we have the, the earthly enemies punished, the spiritual enemies punished. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. Think lake of fire scene. They will be shut up in a prison, okay? And then comes the line. And I'm going to suggest trans something like for many days or from many days they will be punished or not with an intervening time after many days they're going to be kept there and then punished later but the punishment is going to be something that sort of happens concurrently with you know these the judgments that are happening so the idea of them being punished from many days, or even after many days, you could massage your interpretation here, would be that the day of the Lord has been waited for for a very long time. When it happens, bad guys, both ethereal and physical, are going to be gathered together. They're going to be punished. And that's going to wrap things up in, in, in one event, in a climactic eschatological event that we've been waiting for for eons. Okay, Or it could take a certain amount of time. We're not told in the book of Revelation. In other words, there's things you can do with Isaiah 24, 21, and 22 to have some sort of duration going on here before a final annihilation. But you can certainly massage Isaiah 24, 21, and 22 to be consistent with an, an annihilationist perspective as well. I'm just saying that in this question, ultimately, you have to look at verses like this one from Isaiah 24, you have to look at the lake of fire scenes in Revelation uh, 19 and 20, you know, the, these episodes that are described. We have to take comments from 1 Corinthians 15 about the death of death. You have, to, you have to define what death is. Is it physical termination only? Is it termination of, of your spirit? Is it just separation from God and more metaphorically? You have to answer all these questions because the you know the question the way it let off is correct. You don't get specifically a phrase like eternal death in the text of scripture. You get eternal life, and then there's this alternative, and the alternative might be quote unquote eternal death, even though that phrase doesn't appear, or it could be destruction, and the results of the destruction are enduring. They're never reversed, and therefore they are eternal. So, again, the, the, the quibbling about the language is, is necessary because there are phrases we wish would show up in the text but don't, and the stuff that does show up in the text can be taken really two fundamentally different ways depending on how you massage a few things, and, including Old Testament passages. So this is why I say I think both views should be on the table, but annihilation you know, should certainly be given consideration because it, it may very well be the one that makes the most sense, but I can't uh, exclude the other. I can't just say that that's you know, flim-flam or something like that because there are ways to get there uh, and argue that, that perspective. John from Salina, Texas has our next question, and in chapter 10 episode, Revelation chapter 10 episode, we see the Old Testament references for the mighty angel. Another visual concept stood out to me about the angel, and that is that he was standing on the water or sea and land, similar to the spirit hovering over the waters in creation, or Jesus walking on the waters. 
Does this water element connect to the Old Testament Jewish view of Yahweh in this passage, i.e. the creation narrative? Does the reference to the rainbow over the angel's head connect to this as well? The, the last part of that is, is the briefest. It, it really hasn't been a connection that anyone's argued for, probably because of the late entry, Genesis 9, of the rainbow in Genesis. In other words, if you'd have the rainbow present in Genesis 1, well, you know, then you can sort of argue, connect it back to you know, creation. And we'll grant that in Genesis 9 we have a, a recreation, uh, at least of what was destroyed in the flood. And again, that depends if you think it's global or regional, blah, 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 which we've talked about many times on the podcast. But since the, the rainbow enters the picture later than the rest of the creation imagery, it, it tends to not be looped into the discussion. As to the... the the other question about the Old Testament Jewish view of Yahweh and, and connecting that with Jesus, this is a really perceptive comment and question from John because this, the standing element here, standing on the water or the sea, and of course on the land as well, but I, I, I'm willing to say this. I think conceptually that may very well connect to what we, we call angelomorphic Christology. And again, I'm, I'm assuming that people have listened to the series on Revelation. We get into the to, to angelomorphic Christology in a couple places in the book of Revelation. This is when Christ is, is depicted as an angel. And it doesn't mean that Christ is a created being and blah, 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 blah. It's a connection back to the Old Testament angel of the Lord, where that particular angel just happened to be Jehovah, just happened to be God. Okay? So it, it, it's a way of connecting Jesus to an Old Testament deity figure other than alongside Yahweh himself. Because in the Old Testament, you have two Yahwehs. You have Yahweh invisible and transcendent, and in the same scene sometimes or separate, they're, they're both separate and together, depending on what passage you're in, you also have the angel of Yahweh, who is spoken of as though he is Yahweh. And again, for, for those who might just be flicking on their, their, their you know, the podcast for the first time. Yes, I know that messenger formula in the ancient Near East has first-person grammatical language where, that the messenger could sort of pretend or be considered to be the one who sent him. Yeah, I know all that. It's just too bad that in Genesis 48, 15, and 16, the angel says nothing. It's Jacob's assessment of the angel of the Lord, and it clearly connects grammatically with the verb form in verse 16. It connects the angel with Yahweh. It fuses them together. And there are other places where, you know, the angel says, I am the God of Bethel. I mean, what, what else do you want him to say? If you were trying to keep them separate, you wouldn't do things like this in the text. But the, the point is they're not. They don't need to because Israelite religion, Israelite theology of the biblical period is like other religions of the ancient Near East in this respect. You can have a deity be more than one person at one time and in different places. The concept of a Godhead is very ancient. It's not something invented by New Testament writers or somebody at the Council of Nicaea. It's deeply, millennia older than that, it's deeply you know, entrenched into ancient Near Eastern modes of thinking about deities. So the, the fact here is that you might have uh, an instance here where this angel could take us you know, mentally, conceptually, back to Jesus walking on the water. I mean, there, it's it's certainly, the episode of Jesus walking on the water is certainly a victory over chaos, you know, metaphor, situation going on. It's certainly that. But do we get a, some Christological payoff from it? We, you know, I'm willing to say that, that it might, it really might be worth looping this into the angelomorphic Christology discussion. Now, what it ultimately, which I shouldn't say ultimately, but what it predominantly might depend on would be the order of the writings what came first let's just use matthew matthew or the book of revelation now again for the for the, the lay person well, well of course matthew's first because when i open my new testament i read matthew mark luke john and revelation comes at the end so matthew had to be written before book of revelation was written see that, that's reasoning from a table of contents <laughs> which is not a good way to, to reason about a biblical question. Uh, there's a lot of debate 
over the order of the Gospels in which they were written. Um, most scholars, it's fair to say, uh, think Mark was first, uh, followed by Matthew and Luke. Uh, there are others that, that argue that Matthew was first. Why is it important? Because if, if Matthew was written, let's say, before Revelation, then you really can't have John in Revelation you know, too deliberately thinking about what's written in Matthew. I mean, well, let me just say that better. I'm, get, I'm getting a little chronologically messed up here. Was Revelation, at the time of the writing of Revelation, was Matthew around so that, that John could look at it or remember it or recall it and think, hmm, you know, I've got an angel here treading on the sea. Maybe that, that's my way of, of talking about Jesus as being this particular angel in a victory over chaos. Well, if Matthew exists before Revelation, that becomes more of a possibility. If Matthew was only written after Revelation, then you have a different set of circumstances. To me, this would actually be the better one for angelomorphic Christology, because then, you, then you'd have Matthew taking an image here from the book of Revelation. Let's say Matthew was written in 100, you know, 180 or something right? after Revelation. Then you'd have Matthew going back to this angel, angelic scene and connecting it that way, possibly with some of the other stuff in Revelation, thinking that his readers are going to know this material about the end and be able to you know, connect those dots. So, you know, all of this is speculation because we don't know for sure what was written first and what came next and all this sort of thing. We tend to think that Matthew was, was written during Matthew's lifetime. He would have been dead you know, by this time. John is the last apostle to to survive. And we know that because Jesus tells us that's the way it's going to play out. So when scholars talk about the authorship of a gospel, they're, they're both talking about the initial author and then its final, you know, its final editorial compilation. And in Matthew, that's a relevant question. You know, in, in all the books, it's a relevant question because I think, well, it's easier, easier to, to demonstrate from Matthew. Matthew is famous for having chiasms everywhere. Okay, did Matthew do all those on his own up front, or, or at least some of them parts of editorial hands to make one part of the book connect with another part of the book, or to highlight some thought in Matthew that maybe the same episode in Mark doesn't highlight? In other words, who's making these decisions? Is it Matthew as the original writer, or is it some, some later scribal hand assembling Matthew's material? You know, for posterity. We just don't know. We don't know how much of this activity went on. We don't know who did it. Uh, but it, it's, it's pretty safe to say that, you know, some of it happens in some places. And so then the question becomes one of extrapolation. That's where you get into speculation. So if, in, in the Old Testament, a lot of this kind of stuff is much more easily discernible, like switches from the first to the third person that we've talked about in the podcast before when we get into this subject. It's a lot easier to see an editorial hand in the Old Testament, but the reasoning is, is simple and I think sound. If editorial activity in the Old Testament is part of, of how we should think about inspiration, well, then it's on the table for the New Testament as well. Again, that, that's a coherent conclusion to draw, but we don't know that it's actually true <laughs> or to what extent. So that, that's, a, that's a long, convoluted you know, discussion of this one question, but the question is really an interesting one because of, again, the order of the writings. And I think, uh, again, this is, this is a possibility uh, because of the C reference, um, but it would, your argument for it or against it would be strengthened in one respect or the other by knowing which came first, which was the chicken and which was the egg. And I don't think we're going to be able to, to nail that down anytime soon. Donnie says that he's come across some pagan illusions in Revelation, like seven seals used to seal Roman legal documents, woman, child, dragon parallels, Egyptian and Greek mythology of Horus and Apollo, harlot riding the beast as a Greek myth on creation of Europe. Does this mean John wrote this for a Hellenistic Jewish audience or pagan audience? Well, the answer is he's writing to both. The church, he's writing to the people alive at the time he's alive, and he's alive in the Hellenistic period. So it's, it's obvious that he's writing to Hellenistic Jews, 
because he's, he's assuming a very deep knowledge of the Septuagint. If we've learned one thing through this podcast series on Revelation, it's that. John assumes that his audience knows their Old Testament via the Septuagint very well. Uh, so he assumes a lot on the part of his readers. But that's not to exclude pagans, because the Septuagint wasn't just a, a book that only Hellenistic Jews read. The fact that, it, that you have the Hebrew Bible put into Greek, it was done in part to circulate this Jewish sacred book among Greek readers, just generally, the whole population. So um, among pagans, it became a literary work. They could read this and become quite familiar with it. So he's really writing you know, to, to a church composed of both you know, Hellenistic Jews you know, Jewish believers in Jesus and, and those who are, are, are Gentile, who have come, you know, to faith in Jesus, but they're, they're all using the Septuagint. That's, that's the passageway in. So, you know, John knows his audience, and this is why he's doing what he's doing. So we can't isolate it to one or the other. It's really both. The Septuagint itself, we could, we could riff on this a little bit. The Septuagint itself was, has Egypt as a provenance. This is, this is where it was. the work was done, at least according to the, the few sources that we have that might be relevant to how the, the Septuagint came to be. Uh, you can read any number of introductions on the Septuagint. What you're going to find is that the book was essentially produced by Jewish translators you know, of, of the Hebrew Bible to, to do two things. One, promote Judaism in the Hellenistic world generally, whether, whether that's a Jewish audience or a pagan audience, they want people to know about the acts and power of the God of Israel on behalf of his people. So it's done for that reason. And also, uh, more politically, it's done to better market the Ptolemies, who are, who are the rulers in Egypt at the time, who have, have a good track record of being patrons of the arts and, and friendly you know, toward uh, toward Jewish communities and, and learning more broadly. Think of the library at Alexandria. Okay? This is during the reign of the Ptolemies. Okay? So the Septuagint is part of that matrix of ideas. Now, I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit about the sources that we have from uh, Jennifer Dines' book on the, on the Septuagint, her introductory book on the Septuagint, because we basically have two sources. We've got something called the Letter of Aristeas, and then we have excerpts from the, the ancient historical writer Aristobulus. And his work is excerpted from other literary works itself. So let me just read a little bit. And you'll know that, again, there's an, there's an Egyptian provenance to this, which would have opened the gate to exposing Judaism, exposing the, the Torah, the whole Hebrew Bible, more than the Torah, to a pagan world, to a Greek-speaking world, regardless of whether they were Jewish or not. So the letter of Aristeus uh, about that source, Dines has a few things to say uh, just generally. She says, evidence begins to accumulate for the existence of many books of the Hebrew Bible in Greek from the mid-2nd century BC. By the end of the 1st century CE, wider collections were in circulation among both Greek-speaking Jews and Christians, some of them revised in various ways. By the time of the, of the first nearly complete manuscripts in the fourth century, all the books of the Septuagint were established as scripture in the Christian churches, although within Greek-speaking Judaism, alternative versions, especially Aquilas, were also widely used. Now, let me just stop there. What she's saying is, by the fourth century AD, think of the, the great manuscript Sinaiticus, which included the Septuagint. By the 4th century AD, so the, you know, we're talking here about the 300s AD, you have all of the Hebrew Bible in Greek, i.e. the Septuagint, accounted for. You know, all the portions were, have, have been put into Greek. And that has become, by that time, the Old Testament of Christian churches everywhere, largely because it's a Greek-speaking world. And... You know, Jews also used the Septuagint. Unless, you know, it was discouraged. We've talked about this with in relationship to the two powers in heaven being declared a heresy. But, you know, they, they were aware there was a Septuagint. They used it 
whether they should have or not, again, depending on their own community's direction, it was up to the individual. But there were different versions of the Septuagint, you know, because it was, it was getting copied and no, the copies aren't identical or anything like that. It's the same issue with the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. And so one of the versions that we know of the Septuagint that departs a little bit from some other version of the Septuagint we know is called Aquila. There's, there's Aquila's version, there's uh, Theodosian, uh, his version, and there's just something that would be called the Septuagint or, or Old Greek. Again, the, the terms overlap at some point. Um, they overlap and, and yet are also distinct. So I don't want to turn this into a you know, terminology class on the Septuagint. That would be pretty boring. But anyway, there's a lot of this stuff around for the wider Greek-speaking world. Now, the letter of Aristeus tells us how this sort of circumstance began. And so Dines writes of this one ancient source. It's, it's, just, it's a letter, and it, it gets into the creation of the Septuagint. So she says, at face value, this entertaining but enigmatic work is an eyewitness account by a pagan Greek at the court of Philadelphus of how 72 Jewish scholars were brought from Jerusalem to translate the law into Greek for inclusion in the Royal Library at Alexandria. The consensus is, however, that the anonymous author was really a Jew, writing not in the 3rd but in the 2nd century B.C., 